Um, I believe that guilt is probably the primordial liberal emotion, since it excuses everything, it requires nothing, and it leaves its acolytes with a delicious but toxic feeling of inebriation, sort of orgy of self-righteousness, followed quickly by the hangover of punitive liberalism. If you don't know what I mean, uh, then I suggest that you watch a commercial by uh, the folks who are supporting Barack Hussein Obama, and you'll understand uh, instantly what I, what I mean by that. Um, I'll come back to the, to the subject of guilt and its deformations a bit later on. But uh, in addition to thanking Joe and Sharon for their magnificent hospitality, I want to thank all of you for uh, indeed spending your Saturday night here, a beautiful evening to be out on the lake. Um, uh, and supporting the cause. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're all of us very grateful to you for, for coming. Uh, for us, these annual visits to the Midwest have become one of the high points of, of the summer. And I speak not only for myself and my family, but also for the extended family of my colleagues at the, the New Criterion and Encounter Books, among whom uh, there's a, arisen a kind of jealous competition over who gets to accompany us when we, when we come out here. Um, Joe already introduced David Yezzi, our executive editor, and James Pinero, our mm -hmm. managing editor. I'd also like to introduce to you um, Callie Siskel, a Chicago girl, uh, who joined us very recently, and uh, she's in charge of the Friends program and uh, sort of our, our, uh, is our ambassador to the larger world. So if you have any questions about the new Criterion uh, or about the Friends program, uh, Callie can help. And if I, I'm sure that everyone here as a longtime subscriber to the new Criterion, but in the unlikely event that any of you have inadvertently let your subscription lapse, she can uh, help you out of that embarrassing situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, can uh, everybody hear up there, by the way? Yeah. yeah. We're going to speak loudly enough. Okay, great. Um, uh, as Joe mentioned, we're, we're here tonight not only uh, as ambassadors for the new Criterion, but also for Encounter Books. And I'd like to introduce Nola Tully, uh, sitting next to Callie. Uh, a Cincinnati girl, uh, so we were well represented from the Midwest. I was born in Shaker Heights, actually, so uh, there you go. Um, uh, Nola's our director of operations, and uh, please do feel free to take a, a catalog. It's, it's hot off the press. It's got many good things, uh, most of which uh, will appear when they are promised, uh, with the exception of one or two, perhaps. Uh, and we also have a few copies, a few signed copies of Andrew McCarthy's um, recent book, brilliant book called Willful Blindness, which is about uh, he was the prosecutor of the blind Sheikh, who was one of the masterminds of the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. And um, I'll, I'll touch on, on that uh, later this evening, but it's a, it's a brilliant book, and there are a few copies there uh, which we'll let you have for some uh, a very attractively discounted and tax-free price. So, see you <laughs> later. Um, there's one other person, uh, well, I want to make one other introduction anyway, uh, and that is, I'd like to introduce you to Muhammad. <laughs> um, now, Muhammad is not his real name, uh, even though Muhammad is the most popular name for, for boys in England, in Denmark, and elsewhere in Europe, and it's fast becoming a very popular name here, too. Um, what's in a name? Yeah. Shakespeare asked him. Quite a lot, I think. Um, I'm happy to assure you that there actually, in the Kimball household, is no one named Muhammad. But just for tonight, I'm going to bestow upon Teddy that name, uh, because I can. We can still do that in most places in America. But don't try it 
in a Muslim country. Uh, a, a school teacher called Gillian Gibbons uh, uh, tried it in the Sudan, a British school teacher in her 50s. She was uh, over in the Sudan uh, bringing literacy and cheer to the six and seven year olds there and uh, gave her pupils a, uh, a class teddy bear and asked them to name it. And the name they chose was Muhammad. That was a big mistake. Because several parents complained that this was uh, insufficiently reverential toward the prophet. And the result was that uh, Miss Gibbons was arrested and put into a Sudanese jail. And that was only the beginning. Uh, the story got around, and thousands of people took to the streets wielding uh, machetes and clubs uh, and baying for her blood. They thought that she should be executed. Fortunately for her, there was also an outcry in, in the West, and uh, after an intercession by two prominent British Muslims with uh, the, the Sudan uh, president, uh, she was released uh, after a couple of weeks and deported. Otherwise, she might have bowled in a Sudanese jail for a few years and then been hauled out and publicly flogged. And I suppose that's a, that's a victory of sorts. Uh, you know, many other women have certainly uh, not fared, uh, and men for that matter, fared so well for making uh, 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 inoffensive gestures like naming a teddy bear Muhammad. Uh, but uh, although it could have been worse, my, my joy in this, like Yum Yum's and the Mikado, was distinctly modified by the terms of her release. Because uh, what happened, we, we read in a press release of, about this, uh, tell us that these British Muslims uh, interceded on her behalf and so on, and that she was pardoned. Now, in my dictionary, to pardon someone means that you forgive them for a wrongdoing, that you do something wrong and you're pardoned. But what did Miss Gibbons do wrong? Well, by naming the teddy bear Muhammad, she did nothing wrong. If there's any pardoning to be done, it seems to me that it's Miss Gibbons who should be making the pardon. Uh, after all, she was arrested, tossed into a Sudanese jail for a couple of weeks. Just imagine what that's like. I think it's probably not as nice as uh, Guantanamo Bay. I doubt that she had her own uh, uh, chapel. I, I, I doubt that it's an institution like Guantanamo Bay where the medical personnel actually outweighs the number of, uh, there are more medical personnel than prisoners. I doubt that's the case in, uh, in Sudan. Anyway, uh, uh, Miss Gibbons, when she got out, uh, instantly uh, went into sort of cringe mode and said, uh, I have great respect for the Islamic religion. Uh, I apologize, and I would not knowingly offend anyone. I am sorry if I caused any distress. So let's think about that. You, uh, you go to some godforsaken place, and for derisory pay, endeavor to help the local children out of the sinkhole of poverty and ignorance that they're in, and the response, the, uh, the locals take to the streets demanding your head because uh, you were nice to the tots and bought them a teddy bear. Does that merit an apology? It seems to me that it merits contemptuous rebuke. But in apologizing uh, to her victimizers, Miss Gibbons was simply mouthing the popular new mantra for fear of offending the Muslims. We can't do this for fear of offending the Muslims. We can't give away piggy banks anymore, as, as one European bank did, uh, to say nothing of other pig-related items, for fear of offending Muslims. Uh, I'm not making this up, by the way. This is quite true. Uh, we, we mustn't uh, publish cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad uh, for fear of offending the Muslims. Um, we mustn't publish articles pointing out the demographic disparity between uh, the Muslim population in Canada, Europe, and other parts of the population 
for fear of offending the Muslims. We mustn't even publish books saying critical things about Saudis and terrorists. I got a, uh, as a publisher of Encounter Books, one of our distributors uh, sent me a letter about Andy McCarthy's book saying, by the way, is there any mention of Saudis or terrorists in this book? Because if so, we may have to be very careful about distributing this book in Britain uh, and, and Canada. Um, some, as, some of you may know, uh, last year, Cambridge University Press, the oldest press in the world, uh, announced that it would pulp all unsold copies of a book called Alms for Jihad, Charity and Terrorism in the Islamic World. This book sort of showed how uh, uh, many uh, Islamic charities are actually front organizations uh, that funnel money to Al-Qaeda and other, other terrorist groups. Now, why would they do this? Why would Cambridge University Press, which went through its usual vetting process and uh, you know, published a very scholarly book by uh, an ex-State Department chap and an emeritus professor of history, uh, why would they you know, disown the author so precipitously? Well, because lawyers for someone called Khalid bin Mahfouz, former, ch former chairman of the BCCI Bank, if some of you remember that scandal, uh, Saudi banker who lives in London, wrote Cambridge a letter threatening to sue. So Cambridge instantly capitulated, paid substantial but undisclosed damages to bin Mahfouz, issued a public apology, and undertook to contact university libraries worldwide to ask them to remove the books from their shelves. And they did. I went to the New York Public Library, uh, the Yale uh, University Library, I wrote to friends at the Dartmouth Library, the BU Library, all of them had the book listed in their card catalog, and in every case it was unavailable. Uh, now, in some cases it may have been stolen, but I think in many cases the librarians uh, capitulated to this, to this demand. Um, in fact, as it turns out, suppressing books that he doesn't like is sort of a hobby for Mr. Bin uh, Lafouz. His, his website lists uh, several su successful actions that he's brought against other authors, including uh, American authors who publish books uh, in this country not even officially distributed in England, uh, and, and he's, he's been successful in suing him. And don't think that this sort of thing doesn't happen here in the good old freedom-loving U.S. of A. Just a couple of days ago, the Wall Street Journal reported that Random House, a huge publisher, uh, suddenly decided not to publish a book called The Jewel of Medina, a novel that Random House publicist called a, quote, tale of lust, love, and intrigue in the Prophet Muhammad's harem. And specifically, the book dealt with uh, the figure of Aisha, a real historical character who was Muhammad's nine-year-old bride. Uh, Salman Rushdie, some of you may remember the satanic verses, but he got in trouble for what was so troubling to the Ayatollah Khomeini was those chapters dealing with the same character. Uh, uh, it's okay to be polygamous. It's okay to uh, send your uh, 10, 12, or 13-year-old daughters back to Pakistan to, uh, you know, for an arranged marriage to their 50-year-old cousin, but if you publish a novel about that, you're in, in big trouble. Now, there are probably good literary reasons not to publish The Jewel of, of, of Medina, uh, you know, but Random House didn't, I mean, they paid this author a lot of money. Uh, they pulled it at the last moment, not because it was a trashy, soft porn burger ripper, but because an Islamic scholar who saw the proofs rang the alarm, activating a kind of cataract of uh, uh, anger and irritation on the part of the Muslim community. So bloggers, Muslim bloggers, began cir circulating a seven-point strategy online to ensure that the writer withdrew the book, 
and that she pol apologized to Muslims across the world for this, uh, for this horrible uh, insult uh, to, to Islam. And in the event, uh, the Random House, they saved her the trouble of doing this because after consulting various security experts, Thomas Perry, the deputy publisher of Random House, said that the company received, quote, cautionary advice, not only that the publication of this book might be offensive to some of the Muslim community, but also that it could incite acts of violence by a small radical segment. So Random House pulled the book, and the public must go without this latest retelling of Muhammad's amatory conquests among the prepudescent. Well, big deal you might be thinking, the world might be better off without the jewel of Medina, and maybe it is. But is it better off with the atmosphere of intimidation on the one side and the atmosphere of capitulation on the other side that made the publication of this book impossible? I mean, why is it that a bunch of radical <coughs> Islamists should tell Random House what they can and cannot publish? Unfortunately, that cravenness is a sign of the times. Just think about uh, how much has changed in the last few years. Jihad isn't a word that enjoyed much currency uh, in our culture, I think, in, until 9-11, until September 11, 2001. You've probably heard the word, but it belonged to that vast anthropological repository of atavism, uh, witch burning, cannibalism, public beheadings, you know, all of the uh, public sports that are still in favor in places like Saudi Arabia. Um, we, we most of us thought the, they, that belonged to the ugly childhood of some faraway barbaric culture. If called upon to define jihad, most of us would have defined it the way that my dictionary does. We said that it's a Muslim holy war against infidels. And that is the practical or operational meaning of the term. And you shouldn't uh, allow yourselves to be distracted by recent efforts on the part of the US State Department, no less, and the Department for, of Homeland Security, uh, who now caution us to avoid using the term jihad altogether. Or if we insist upon using it, to redefine it as, quote, a process of inner struggle and self-discovery. But don't take my word uh, uh, for it. Listen to Omar Abdel Rahman. He's the blind shake that uh, Andy McCarthy uh, tells us about in his book, the chap who masterminded the first World Trade Center and who after it failed said, next time we'll do it right. Uh, uh, Jihad, he says, means fighting the enemies. If God says, Ramon says, if God says do jihad, it means do jihad with the sword, with the cannon, with grenades, and with the missile. This is jihad. Jihad against God's enemies for God's cause and his word. Now I think uh, one of the things I like about that statement is that it's um, hermeneutically transparent. You know where you stand. It's pretty clear. And what is the end or the goal of jihad? What is this God's cause that Omar Abdul Rahman appeals to? Well, it's the institution of Sharia, that is, Islamic law. And not just in countries that have been traditionally Islamic. It's the institution of Sharia everywhere. Islam is a uh, militant, hegemonic, expansionist religion that does not recognize any distinction between God's realm and the secular realm. And uh, what it seeks to do is establish the rule of Sharia everywhere. And just think what that would mean. Now, personally, 
Um, uh, as I say, I take the blind shake of his word when he explains what something like jihad means. And if I had any doubts about that, they would certainly be quelled by reports like just happened a day or two ago about the arrest of someone called Afia Sadiq. Now, she's a 36-year-old Pakistani woman who'd been educated at our expense, of course, at MIT. And she was recently uh, arrested in Afghanistan. Uh, she had in her possession maps of New York. It listed potential targets that included the Statue of Liberty, Times Square, the subway system, and the Animal and D Disease Center on Plum Island, Long Island Sound. Detailed chemical, biological, and radiological weapon information, and a computer thumb drive chock full of incriminating email. Now, as I'm speaking to you tonight, uh, some ACLU types are demonstrating on her behalf, claiming that she was framed by the US government. I wonder what they would say if Sadiq and her friends managed to carry out some of these plans that they, that they have uh, uh, brewing. Still, notwithstanding the continuing threat of jihadists like the blind Sheikh and Afia Sadiq and many others, uh, I think we may have, in the end, even more to fear from the rise of what I think of as soft jihad. Traditional jihad is waged with scimitars and their contemporary equivalents, it's like stolen Boeing 767s, which after all make handy instruments of mass homicide. Soft jihad is a, a quieter affair. It uses and abuses the language and the attitudes that make freedom possible. And, uh, sorry, the, the language and the attitudes of democratic li liberalism not to secure the institutions and attitudes that make freedom possible, but on the contrary, to undermine that freedom and pave the way for self-righteous, theocratic intolerance. Soft jihad, unlike the hard varieties, is patient. It can add and multiply as well as Mark Stein can. And it sees the demographic writing on the wall just as he does. And it's content to wait a few years to occupy the West's real estate. After all, it's so much easier when you come right down to it than blowing the stuff up and then finding yourself with a massive cleanup bill and a rebuilding project. They just sit tight and watch the infidels tie themselves into knots, making excuses for you. While elsewhere in their lives, they embrace reproductive barrenness as an environmentally friendly alternative to the Genesis injunction to be fruitful and multiply. All these buildings will be, be theirs one day soon and one day soon. A soft jihad, I think, is, a, is an ever-increasing threat. And it's a threat we seem to be unwilling to counter or even really to, to recognize. For one thing, many of the institutions you might think would be in there in the trenches helping to keep America safe from radical Islam seem to have contracted a bad case of Stockholm Syndrome. Or maybe it's only the diplomats de formation professionnelle, the inbred tendency to regard every enemy as a treaty or an agreement just waiting to happen. Unfortunately, as people like the blind shape show, some enemies do not want a court. They want to compass our destruction. And to achieve that, they are perfectly happy to use whatever means are available, including the naivete of the eager diplomat who believes that when he has struck a deal, he has assured compliance. And one of the most dispiriting examples of this head in the sand species of diplomatic delusion is the State Department's and the Department of Homeland Security's increasing reluctance to face up to reality and call things by their correct names. I was speaking to someone earlier this evening about George Orwell. Remember, in his novel 1984, he describes newspeak. That was a term that Orwell coined 
uh, for a mode of speech that would enforce a politically correct mode of thinking. Uh, and it was done, or well explains, partly by the invention of new words, but chiefly by eliminating undesirable words and by stripping such words as remain uh, of any unorthodox uh, meaning. As an example, Orwell noted that while the word free still existed in Newspeak, it could only be used in a sort of derivative sense in such statements as, this dog is a tree of lice. It could not, he continues, be used in the old sense of politically free or intellectually free, since political and intellectual freedom no longer existed, even as concepts, and were therefore necessarily nameless. Newspeak, Orwell says, was designed not to extend to diminish the range of thought. And this purpose was indirectly assisted by cutting the choice of words down to a minimum. Now, 1984, of course, is a, a novel. It's a dystopian fantasy. <clears throat> but those agencies of our government charged with uh, combating Islamic radicalism seem to me to have taken a few hints from its pages. Reports issued by the Department of Homeland Security and the State Department are urging its employees to refrain from using terms like jihad, as I said, uh, or even Islam itself, or Muslims, especially uh, in conjunction with phrases like al-Qaeda. This past winter, the Department of Homeland Security issued a document called Terminology to Define the Terrorists, Recommendations from American Muslims. Now, while you ponder why it is that the Department of Homeland Security is gathering recommendations about how to combat radical Islam from American Muslims, let me mention a few things that this document recommends. Because we are supposed to be, quote, communicating with and not confronting Muslims, the document advises us not to insult or confuse them with pejorative terms like Islamofascism, which are considered, as I say, offensive by many Muslims. The word progress is okay. But, and here I really think of George Orwell, the experts consulted rejected the word liberty because many around the world would discount the term as a buzzword for American hegemony. And that I find pretty amazing coming from the Department of Homeland Security. It seems to me that it should be renamed the Department of Homeland Insecurity. Uh, those leading the fight against terrorism uh, tell us that and this is also a quote from that document. The fact is that Islam and secular democracy are fully compatible. In fact, they can make each other stronger. But where is evidence of that? In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, President Bush went to a mosque and told his audience that Islam meant peace. And perhaps that was a politically expedient thing to do, a Somalian thing to do, to calm people's nerves. But it is not true. Islam means total submission to the will of Allah. And absent that submission, Muslims give us not peace, but jihad. We've seen that over and over again. While emissaries from the State Department and the Department of Homeland Security are making Herculean efforts not to do or say anything that will offend Muslims, radical Muslims are busy extending the list of things that they are offended by, while also seeking new ways to insinuate elements of Sharia law into the West, a mode of theocratic imposition that far from being fully compatible with secular democracy, is something closer to its antithesis. Now, I think it's worth keeping these humbly facts in mind as we ponder the threats that we face. For the last few decades, American colleges and universities have been preaching the creed of multiculturalism and cultural relativism, 
politicians and pundits and the so-called cultural elite have assiduously absorbed this catechism, the chief tenet of which is that all cultures are equal and equally valuable, and that therefore preferring one culture or intellectual heritage or moral and social order is to another is to be guilty of ethnocentrism and racism. Of course, anyone who's actually looked at this stuff in operation knows that it's not really egalitarian as, as it seems, because you soon realize that, it's, that the doctrine of cultural relativism is always a sort of weighted relativism. Preferring Western culture or the West's intellectual heritage to another is to be culpable in a way that preferring other traditions to ours is not. You see this all the time in colleges and universities, which, uh, I mean, if, if you see something called American studies at a university, you can be sure that what it really is is anti-American studies. <laughs> but the, the rise of multiculturalism in the West, and note well that it's almost exclusively a Western phenomenon, parallels dissolutions elsewhere in our society. Only a few years ago, we were invited by Francis Fukuyama to contemplate the spectacle of the end of history and the establishment of Western-style democracy the world over. We're supposed to be uh, in a period where uh, our chief problem is going to be boredom. Well, uh, it's not only the Islamic terrorists, it's also uh, newly regnant states like Russia who are showing us that history is, is far from over. Uh, and what we're really witnessing is not the, the end of history, but something that we might call the re-tribalization of the world, uh, which proceeds very, uh, very quickly as centrifugal forces threaten to undermine the sources of national identity and with it the sources of national strength and security which that strength underwrites. The threat shows itself in many ways, from culpable complacency to the corrosive imperatives of multiculturalism and political correctness with their uh, gospel of relativism. The multiculturalists claim to be fostering a sort of progressive cultural cosmopolitanism that's distinguished by superior sensitivity to the downtrodden and possessed, dispossessed. In fact, what they encourage is a sort of orgy of self-flagellating guilt that is in, as impotent as it is insatiable. The crucial thing to understand is that multiculturalism is not about recognizing genuine cultural diversity or encouraging vibrant pluralism, certainly good things. Rather, what it's about is undermining the priority of Western values in our society, and not only in our educational system, but also in our society at large. As the political scientist Samuel Huntington put it, multiculturalism is, quote, anti-European civilization. It is basically an anti-Western ideology. And it is in this sense that multiculturalism and political correctness have been critical intellectual and moral enablers for the agenda of radical Islam. And the resulting preemptive cringe, this sort of sudden upsurge of that famous chilling effect that you were always hearing about, but now finally can see in action is one of the results. The Danish cartoons, uh, for example, or the fact that universities across the country are building at considerable expense uh, foot baths for their Islamic students, uh, you know, special accommodations for, their, for their, the religious needs of their Islamic students, but for no other students, or the fact that um, um, hospitals, other institutions, uh, you know, have special diets for their Muslim patients, uh, uh, special accommodations for, for the uh, holiday of Ramadan and so on. All of this, you know, proceeds apace in many, many institutions. I think my, my favorite example uh, in this lexicon of capitulation came from the British Home Secretary after uh, a bunch of radical Muslims blew up um, uh, the, the 
subway there, um, she decided that we should no longer speak of Islamic terrorism when they do these sorts of things, but rather, and I quote, anti-Islamic activity. So a radical Muslim blows up uh, Basra subway. That's not an example of Islamic terrorism. That's an example of anti-Islamic activity. And she did this, she said, in order to woo Muslims to our side. Now, where does that kind of uh, lie? And where, what, what's, the, what's the, uh, the end of all of that? Uh, you, you, you probably remember that the historian Arnold Toynbee once observed that uh, most cultures that disintegrate, they don't die uh, from murder, they die from suicide. And um, I think that uh, there are a lot of suicidal tendencies in the West now, kind of, uh, inability to stand up for ourselves, for our principles, for our uh, for core beliefs, uh, an unwillingness to recognize what has made uh, the West really a, a beacon uh, of, of uh, freedom and economic opportunity and uh, moral and social progress for the rest of the world. Now, there have been some, uh, some uh, encouraging signs, um, uh, even, even at the UN, not one of my favorite institutions. If, 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 if it had been I who designed it, I would have uh, designed the UN with large bolts at the bottom so that it could have been uh, unbolted and pushed into the East River and so <laughs> But I was consulted about it. But even the UN recently uh, decided that um, these British libel laws, which have been used to uh, silence criticism of radical Islam, uh, violated a fundamental human rights. So even in, the, in those corridors of, of power, uh, people have seemed to be uh, waking up to the progress of soft jihad and Sharia creed. Um, but at the same time, it's worth noting that radical Islam continues to make conspicuous strides in co-opting Western institutions and legal instruments, our courts and so on, to undermine the reality of Western liberty. For example, a Turkish lawyer uh, finds that the white jerseys with a bold red cross of an Italian football team remind him of the Crusades. So what does he do? Uh, he sues the team for wearing the shirts because they're offensive to Muslim sensibilities. Uh, this spring, the Associated Press reported on the summit meeting of the Organization of the Islamic Conference in Senegal, so, you know, huge uh, international conference uh, uh, of Muslims, uh, leaders of the world's Muslim nations, the report told us, are considering taking legal action against those that slight their religion or its sacred symbols. Uh, Abdullah Wei, Senegal's president, said, I don't think freedom of expression should be mean freedom from blasphemy. There can be no freedom without limits. Now, of course, there's a sense, this is, shows you how insidious this stuff is, there's a sense in which what President Wade says is correct. There can be no freedom without limits. James Madison or John Locke uh, might have said something similar, but the very different intent. The alarming thing is the way that President Wade latched on to the rhetoric of classical liberalism, not to support the values of liberalism, but to undermine them. If a Danish newspaper publishes a character of Muhammad, should Denmark or the paper or the cartoonist responsible be liable uh, to an offended Muslim in Senegal? That's what they're saying. The critical thing to bear in mind is, is this, that one of the features of living in a modern secular democracy is that there's always plenty of offense to go around. That's part of the give and take of living in a modern free society. Another word for that prerogative of offense is freedom. If you prohibit the offense, you kill the freedom. No Muslim is more offended by the cartoons of his prophet than I am by their barbaric reaction to those cartoons. 
But their first reaction when offended is to torch an embassy or shoot a nun or knife a filmmaker. Increasingly, they turn to the courts and sue an individual or an institution or even a country. Now the large issue here, I think, is one that's bedeviled societies like ours, liberal societies, ever since there were liberal societies. Namely, that in, in attempting to create a maximally tolerant society, we also give scope to those who would prefer to create a maximally intolerant society. It's a curious phenomenon. Liberalism implies an openness to other points of view, even, it turns out, those points of view whose success would destroy liberalism. Extending tolerance to those points of view is indeed a prescription for suicide. But intolerance betrays the fundamental pr premise of liberalism, namely openness. So you're kind of caught in a sort of contradiction there. Or an apparent contradiction. In my view, the escape from this disease of liberalism lies in understanding that tolerance, and openness, and all those other virtues must be limited by positive values. They are not to be vacuous. American democracy, for example, affords its citizens a very great latitude. But great latitude is not synonymous with the proposition that anything goes. Our society, like every society, is founded on particular positive values, the rule of law, for example, respect for the individual, uh, the equality of women, religious freedom, the separation of church and state, all things that Islam categorically denies. The imperatives of multiculturalism and political correctness have hindered us from defending, or even, I think, understanding those values. Radical Islam has taken advantage of the resulting vacuum. My point is that the openness that a liberal society rightly cherishes is not a vacuous openness to all points of view. It is not value neutral. It need not, and indeed, it cannot say yes to all comers, to the Islamofascist, who, after all, has his point of view just as much as the soccer mom has hers. Western democratic societies rooted in a particular vision of what Aristotle called the good for man. And the question is, do we as a society still have confidence in the animating values of that vision? Do we possess the requisite will to defend them? Or was the French philosopher Jean-Francois Rebel right when he said that democratic civilization is the first in history to blame itself because another power is trying to destroy it? Now, the jury is still out on that question, I think. But speaking myself as a right-wing, knuckle-dragging, Eurocentric infidel, <laughs> I feel it incumbent upon me to point out that where traditional jihad is probably best dealt with by talented chaps like General Petraeus, soft jihad uh, might often be more effectively countered by quieter crusades. Now, you, all of you probably have many fertile ideas to contribute to the fulfillment of what I hope will become the West's new quiet crusade to make the world safe for Christendom, if we can still use the term Christendom. What does it tell us that that sounds very odd to even utter the word Christendom? But here's a modest proposal uh, for me to get the ball rolling. It was suggested to me by a recent story from the London Times, under a headline shouting, Muslims shocked to learn that crisps contain alcohol, was the illuminating news that Walker's snacks contain traces of alcohol and that eating them is therefore prohibited by Islam. A chap called Suja Safi, who chairs the Food Standards Committee of the Muslim Council of Britain, said that he intended to investigate and warned that, quote, we would find it very offensive to have eaten food with alcohol, end quote. 
the light bulb went off. So here's my modest proposal, which I offer to the food, to the British food and beverage industry, uh, free and for nothing. Start putting a little bit of alcohol in everything that's edible. <laughs> now, there are, of course, other reasons for wishing to increase one's usual consumption of alcohol, but here's a patriotic, patriotic imperative to guide you. What if you went into your local grocery store and every item had at least some trace amount of alcohol, or alternatively, pork residue? I understand that there might be certain logistical difficulties, but if the EU can effectively police the system of mensuration and make it a crime to sell a pound of beef rather, uh, rather than a kilo of beef, uh, if it can prohibit bananas that uh, deviate too much from the perpendicular, uh, you know, and then make, those, make it a crime to sell those, then surely they can employ the vast apparatus of their bureaucracy to assure that a drop of alcohol or a doll of bacon fat is added to any foodstuff sold in Britain. And I'm happy to note uh, that the Firefly Grill has uh, anticipated me in this, uh, <laughs> in, in, in this matter because I discovered that um, their delicious uh, pizza with heirloom tomatoes on it today, well, one of the things that made the heirloom tomatoes so delicious was the fact that they had been simmered for hours in a bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> About 18 years ago, Roger's uh, first book, was that your first book, Tenured Radicals? It was, yeah. Tenured Radicals described uh, what was going on in our universities, uh, warning about the effects of multiculturalism and not standing up for standards. Is that book ever going to be republished, Roger? Joe's by a straight man. Yes, it's coming out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, a new edition, vastly improved, uh, if, 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 if uh, proving not perfection is possible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's coming out this fall from Ivan R.D., the distinguished Chicago publisher. So I, I urge you all to. So if you have the original one, one, you should probably definitely no, get you'll, the. You'll definitely, I mean, it's, you'll definitely want to get. Uh, you'll definitely want to get the, the new copy, and, and it makes a good stocking stuffer too. I think. So yeah. if you want to get a couple of copies. What, what, what amazed me when I first read that book was, you predicted what's happening now, in essence, by not being able to stand up for our own culture. That's why uh, academics like me so much. I was right. <laughs> Did you want to say anything about cruises or anything? Oh, like that? are you going to ever have a cruise? <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, taking a page from the uh, from the book of National Review, the new Criterion this winter uh, is going to uh, embark on its first ever uh, cruise in the Caribbean, and um, uh, we'll have David Price Jones uh, and Anthony Daniels and Mark Stein and Robert Bork. Uh, David and James and I and, and, and some other, and, and Joe Hartman uh, aboard. And um, I hope that all of you will take our June issue, which has a nice full page color ad about the cruise, and uh, consider spending January 25th to February 1st uh, with us. It should be an amusing and enlightening uh, sojourn on the high seas with, uh, I think, a very, a very amusing group of people. Uh, I just want to say something. Uh, we grew up in Egypt. We are mm -hmm. Christian by mm -hmm. birth. Actually, our family, as you know, that most of the Christian in Egypt, uh, in the Middle East, they should have been born Christian. Uh, 
Yeah. And because if you convert from uh, Islam to Christianity, you are beheaded right away. Right. So we are Christian by birth and from 2,000 years. Um, so we know the uh, Islamic culture very well. And I think one of the soft jihad that they do in, in the West is that those uh, Middle Eastern Muslim men, they go and they charm Western women with their decency. It's of course, of course, it's all apparent, all force. And they get married to those uh, undoubtful uh, uh, women. And then they have children that become Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I had seen that many times, and it really it hurts me. And when you see the, the newspaper, like in Egypt, if an American woman gets married to a, a Muslim guy from Egypt, they will put it in the first page. And that she, the, the big head of the Al-Azhar University, or the, the top Muslim leader, will meet that lady to introduce her to the society. They are so happy, and they put it in, in big hand and big writing saying, somebody, American woman, saw the light and became Muslim. Recently, I was visiting a Muslim physician in this area. His little daughter, who is five years old, goes to kindergarten here. She started talking to us, and the little girl said, when I go to school, the, the other kids, they, they talk about Jesus, but I tell them Allah is better than Jesus. They teach her how to convert the other kids. And I think this is one of the soft jihad that they are doing all over the, the unsuspecting uh, Western societies in Europe or here. Yeah, quite right. An- another little idea I have is to prohibit uh, the um, uh, construction of any mosques in Western <coughs> society until there's a, uh, a church and a synagogue in Medina and Riyadh. Uh, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> also, you know, if, you go, if you're in Saudi Arabia and you're going down the highway, um, you'll eventually come to a big green sign, you know, if you, on the way to Medina or Riyadh or any of the other Islamic holy cities. And at some point, some miles before you get there, it'll be an Arab and say obligatory for non-Muslims. In other words, you're not a, you're not allowed. It's against the law. It's a capital offense, capital offense, to go to those cities if you're not a Muslim. So, uh, you know, I'm all for religious pluralism, but I think that religious pluralism uh, requires reciprocity. So my third little idea is to prohibit Muslims from coming to New York or London until we can go to Riyadh and, and Medina. Makes sense to me.